Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. If you didn't get a chance to listen a couple of weeks ago, we kind of set the stage for the context of the book of Ruth and, and kind of drew out just some, some characteristics that, that we're going to see that's a part of their, of their culture, of their day, and the different difficulties that they're experiencing as they, as they walk as the people of God. And so the, the book of Ruth ultimately focuses on the relationship uh, primarily between Ruth and, and her mother-in-law. And, and a couple of weeks ago, we talked about, you know, this is happening in the early days of the, of the judges period of time. And so while there is a book of judges, uh, God chose to, to zoom in on a specific family during the time of judges and to give us a very special story. Instead of including it in a large chronicled book, it gives us a very, very detailed story of a certain family. And I love that aspect as we, as we think about how God sometimes, every story is God's story. And so as, or can be God's story. But we have to learn how to zoom in on it or we need to learn how to zoom out on it. And spiritual maturity gives us the ability to do both of those things at the right time. And so here we are zooming in and Ruth is the sweetheart of the story. And uh, we learn to appreciate that her name, Ruth, actually means friendship. Now I'm going to stop for a moment and say, I might mess this up because my mother's name is Ruth. And when I think of Ruth, I always think of the older one. Not Naomi. To me, Naomi is a younger sounding name. And so if I do mess that up, I have messed that up my entire life and I know the story well. But Ruth was very true to her name. She was a genuine friend to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's a really complicated story because we do, do know the facts of the story that God gave us. But what we do not know is their hearts. We don't know why they made the choices that, that they made and went to the places that they went. But we do, we do kind of get a clue of Ruth's heart as we go on. And the story is about she and Boaz. And ultimately, the story is about Jesus Christ and how he is able, as our kinsman redeemer, to take whatever brokenness and whatever choices and whatever circumstances that we are in, he is able to redeem them and bring them into himself and to make them better. So Ruth tells Naomi that she would go wherever Naomi went and that Naomi's people would be her people. Naomi's God would be her God. We, we even read so far as that, that Ruth even says that wherever you die, I will die. And now that is loyalty and that is friendship and that is commitment because she didn't owe Naomi this. Now it could be that Naomi had no family except maybe her in-laws. But it's doubtful that she had better personally, better external chances in a foreign land with a foreign per people with, a, with no plan in her life. It's doubtful that that's better than just staying back in Moab with her own people. But, but, we, don't, but we don't know. But we need to try to see this story from their viewpoint, not ours. How would you feel? It's easy for us to go to the end of the book and see all of the good news. But, but you're, you only have the evidences as they are revealed. And so you, you have to put yourself in their, from their viewpoint. How would you feel knowing what they know? What decisions would you make seeing what they see? And when you begin to contemplate that emotionally and through your processes, you begin to get a, a, a personal view of what God is able to do in the hearts and minds of people who are just honest before him, who are making the, the decisions that seem right to them at any given moment. So in some ways, Ruth is, is kind of like a, an Abraham, uh, a pagan living in a pagan land and worshiping a pagan God and uh, you know, not really having much to go on. And if you look at all that the scripture has to say about that, it was Abram's father, Terah, who began first to leave Ur and to go to Canaan. You actually see that in Genesis chapter uh, 11, I think at the end of the, at the, end of the chapter, that, that he's going to Canaan, but for some reason they got, they got to Haran and he settled there. 
And, and then it's that place where the trajectory is sort of set. I don't know if Terah heard from God or not, but he got the family going in the right direction. But far from God, God speaks to Abram and says, okay, now it's your turn. Up from your country, up from your people. I'm going to take you to a place that I will show you. You're going to be a stranger there, but I'm going to bless you. And Ruth is sort of like that. And Abram, of course, obeyed God. He followed God. He became a worshiper of God. He became the father of our faith, even in that place. And intentionally, in two different places. What was Isaiah, when God is talking to his people, he talks, Isaiah 41.8, he says that Abraham is my friend. And then over again in, in the book of James, uh, James talks about uh, is Abram's, Abraham's faith uh, and he was called a friend of God. And it's interesting to me that Ruth's name is friendship and Abraham is a friend of God. But Ruth continues this story of, I don't want to say blind faith, but calculated faith of taking choices, making choices because you either trust him or his people. And so she did a lot of the same things that he did. And her heart is... Again, we don't know how long their marriage was, you know, she and her uh, Naomi's son, uh, son but, but she was tied in some pretty strong ways to, to Naomi. Does that speak more of Ruth's friendship and loyalty, or does it speak more to Naomi's openness and nurturing? I'm not sure we will ever know that. But nevertheless, God takes the most unlikely and uses them to tell one of the greatest stories in all of Scripture. Now, Ruth is grieving. She's a grieving widow, too, like Naomi. Her grief isn't as obvious as Naomi's. And I've been saying, wonder why she is so ready. Naomi's grief is causing her to go back home, and, and Ruth's faith or grief is causing her to give up everything, to go with Naomi. Perhaps she hadn't lost as much. Maybe they hadn't been married as long. She was younger. She had more time to rebuild. Uh, and, you know, I, how would we know? But her grief did not identify her. But sadly, Naomi's grief did identify her. And we'll look at that in, in just a few moments. When we look at Ruth's life, we see her, her incredible courage, her resolve, her, her sweet character, it really shines through. Or at least the author, probably Samuel, uh, allows that to be a, a true part of this story. But regardless, this book, from its very beginning, has always stood the test of inspiration. The Jews have always accepted this as a story that was meant for them by God. It was written to the Israelites. So the, let me give you a as we really begin in the narrative of the story, this, this book it teaches them a, a personal encounter where true love is selfless and true love actually asks different questions. And at times, true love will require uncompromising sacrifices. It also teaches that no matter what circumstances or what difficulties that you face, there will never be, this is so important, there will never be a time in your life, there will never be a circumstance that you encounter that ever provides an excuse for you not to obey God and to be faithful to Him. In every opportunity, in every moment, there is always, always the ability to honor God and to obey Him. The third is there is nothing and there is no decision there is no sin, there is no mistakes, whether they are on purpose or whether they're an accident. There is nothing that God cannot redeem if you surrender it to him. There is no past that cannot be redeemed. And lastly, true love and kind devotion will always be rewarded by God. God is merciful to the merciful. And by the way, that's going to be a promise that Jesus even gives in his first public address, that God is merciful to the merciful. 
Then, and I was going through the, the book of Ruth. There isn't a lesson that I have found in the book of Ruth that Jesus doesn't demonstrate for us in his ministry. God abundantly blesses those who seek to live obedient lives. And that's what the Jews are pulling out of the book of Ruth. Now, times are tough for these ladies so far. They've only received bad news. They've had very few answers. They have even fewer resources. They have no tools and so many questions. So we're going to look at a few truths that we can hold out when we're in this situation because God preserves this not for a history lesson. He preserves it so that we will know what to do when life does not make sense. When you do not know what to do next. Now remember, we may think that we can see the big picture. Most people in any given moment think that they have all of the evidences or the the big picture. But sometimes you do have to zoom in or zoom out. Uh, I think of like a, like a camera. Some of you may be familiar with the camera and how, you know, I'm, I'm no photographer, but I do watch photographers do this. They're doing, I don't know what they're doing. They're doing something when they do that. And, and I've learned that that's like zooms in or zooms out right now. Maybe this zooms in, zooms out. I'm not sure. But this kind of happens. And when it happens, you're like, okay, that's clear, but the background's blurry. And they do different things. And it's, it's incredible. That's often what you have to do is you're examining and evaluating your life. If you have to learn how to zoom in and zoom out appropriately. And I'm telling you that most people by nature are always, when you look look at the picture of your life, most people, I don't care who you are, I don't mean this is not a rebuke, but when somebody shows a picture and you're in it, you are the first person you look at. Right or wrong? Okay, good. You're on. Some of you are honest. And it's not because you don't know what you look like, it's just like you're trying to find yourself in the context of the photo makes sense. Do I really look like that? Anybody ever heard themselves on a recording? Do I really sound like that? You know, everybody kind of wants to know. I heard, anyway, I'm, I'm going to get down a rabbit trail. Let me get back. So uh, when you are looking at the story of your life, if you're focusing on yourself, you're going to miss God's glory. It's going to be really blurry. God's glory, God's presence will be really blurry if you only focus on you. But when you take that lens of your life or the evaluation of your eyes and you, and you try to find God's glory in the picture, that's when you will come into better focus. When, it, when, it is revealing, when that lens is revealing what he is actually doing in the picture. This is really an important thing for us to learn as Christians. Because if you, most people, you tell the story, you're going to use the word I a lot. But the truth of the matter is, you are not the central character of your story. God is. God is the central character. It's his story. You are a product of his story. That's why it's called his story. Not, not really, but go with me on it, okay? Now, some of you won't forget that, and you'll, you'll remember, and it'll help. So maybe cling to it. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 12, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, talking about in eternity, we'll see face to face. We only know, we only know anything partially. We only know anything partially at any given moment. And yet it's at any given moment that we're trying to, humanity is, is prone to make assumptions and to draw conclusions based on what they do know. But as you well know, there are two sides to every, and there's probably a lot of sides to every story, to be honest. But people take the perspective that they have and they begin to make assumptions and they build a case that fits the narrative that they want it to be and that becomes true. And sometimes you cannot correct it. But what Paul tells the church at Corinth is even when you are right about something, you still can only see partially. So it's unfair for us when we're even experiencing circumstances or we're experiencing difficulty in our life that we cannot understand, we're probably the least likely to be able to understand it because we can only see it partially, especially if we're only trying to see our side of the story because God has a side of the story. God has a plan. God has a redemptive work that he is always doing and exercising, but seldom do we actually look to see what God is doing especially when we're uncomfortable. You know, when God created 
everything. And a lot of people say, the number one question, there was a poll that went out a few years ago. The number one question, well, the question was, if, if you were to ask, if you were to be able to ask God anything, what would you ask him? Overwhelmingly, the number one question was, we want to know why he allows evil to exist. Why did he create evil to begin with? And the truth of the matter is, is when God created, everything was good, right? Everything was good. He created the Garden of Eden. Everything was good. He created the trees. Everything was good. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says, don't eat it. Is it an evil tree? No, it was good, right? It was good. But there had to be a limit. There had to be something for men to obey for him actually to obey. So God didn't create evil. An evil God would create and then not give the boundaries. But a good God creates and says, see that? Don't, don't do that. Because now you will know, like if I said to you, uh, anybody like pizza? If I say pizza is good, is pizza good? How do you know? Because you like it? I can tell you that you don't know if pizza is good or not if you don't compare it to something else. It's the only way you know it's good. It's got to be compared to something else. And no, you don't compare it to ice cream and you certainly don't compare it to coffee. These are all in an upper rank up here. They're all good, all good. So what I'm saying is, is that for us to be able to call God good, there had to be something there. For, for Adam and Eve to choose to glorify God, there had to be an opportunity for them not to choose to glorify God. And so God did not ordain or, or create a trap for mankind to, to sin. He didn't put before them two options. Quite honestly, he put before them one option. But because they had free will, they chose another. So God is not the author of sin and evil. But though he is not the, the author of sin and evil, he can use it and does use it. It's part of the beauty of it. He can use it for good, even suffering and evil. And there will be a day when suffering and evil will cease and God will judge over all evil and all injustice and while we wait, our hope must be placed in him. Now, I'm not teaching you anything yet. I'm just trying to set, set the tone for what we're about to discover in Ruth chapter 1, verse 11. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And this, at this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, and Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Man, what, what friendship, what commitment. And Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. That's where they originated. She, uh, Naomi originated. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. And so Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. 
Man, it's such a sad story. And my heart, you know, as I read this, I, I, I get even emotional hearing the heart of Naomi. Uh, she has become bitter over the death of her husband and her sons. And she told her, her daughters-in-law there in verse 13, it's, it's more bitter for me than for you. And you know, that sometimes happens. Maybe it is more bitter for her. She lost her husband and her sons. Maybe that's what she's referring to. But often when you're, when you're really going through something, you just feel like nobody's been through it as hard as you're going through it. I mean, I've seen a lot of people mourn. I've, I've been a part of a lot of funerals. I've been a part of a lot of brokenness and, and hospital rooms and, and living rooms where families are grieving. And when people, when you try to encourage people, some of you have heard me say this before, but I, I feel like the wisest that Job's friends ever were when Job was grieving were the days that they sat in silence. Sometimes just being in the room with people is the best help you can give them. When you, when you try to say something in their brokenness and say, I know how you feel, you don't know how somebody feels. And even if you did know how they feel in that moment, I promise you, they think that they've struggled harder than you're struggling or struggled uh, because everybody senses that in those moments. It's never, nobody has ever had to do what I'm doing or deal with what I'm dealing with. So my encouragement to you is don't try to make people feel better by telling them that you know how they feel. Sometimes you can just say, I'm so sorry. I'm going to be over here in the corner praying for you. Ten years after Naomi and her family moved to Moab to escape a famine, she returns back to Bethlehem without her nuclear family. Only her Moabite daughter-in-law Ruth whom by the way nobody knew in verses 19 through 20 it says can this be Naomi they, they they didn't even recognize so you know last week I mentioned in brief that it's possible that they would go back to Bethlehem for sacrifices and things like that uh, from time to time and, and while it is still possible that that was taking place it seems unlikely because it it again appears that the town has not seen Naomi in some time. She, she doesn't look good. Now, again, this is good friend, friendly advice. When you haven't seen somebody in a while, maybe the first thing you say is, you, maybe don't say you look terrible, what's happened. No, you don't even look like who you used to look like. Uh, that's, probably not, that's probably not a good thing to do. Can this be Naomi? Ten years older, but hardly recognizable because of what she's been going through. She said, don't, I don't identify with Naomi anymore. I don't know why you would call me Naomi. Remember Naomi, what Naomi means? Pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. I'm not the woman who left here. I don't look like her. I don't feel like her. I don't talk like her. You don't know me. In other words, she says, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Verse 20. We see her way of thinking has shifted from the woman that they knew. In verse 20, we, we, she believed to be the very root of her bitterness. Look at this. Because the Almighty has made my life bitter, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back Empty. Why would you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Look at these words that she ascribes to her God. Her life is bitter. The Lord has brought me back empty. He has afflicted me. He's brought misfortune upon me. These are very strong words to use of God. In every one of them, she blames him for everything. She's basically saying, I have come back to the people of God, but God himself has destroyed me. It's one thing to think it. There are times when we may think things, but to actually let them come out your mouth, she's been, on, she's been stewing on these thoughts for some time for them to come out. The distance between the mind and the mouth takes years Sometimes months. 
But she's really been processing and she's been thinking about it and now she wears it as her, as her identity. But I, I don't want to be too quick to judge Naomi because she's, she's experiencing a lot of pain and, very, and had received very, she was in a dry, not literally, spiritually dry place and she had forfeited the people that, were, that should have been around her to encourage her during these times. She had nobody to encourage her. How important is it to have people around you that can encourage you? I see this happen all of the time. I'm going to take just a moment. This is not a reprimand by, by any means. But, but people who surround themselves with people are spiritually healthier. They have a better spiritual practices. Uh, they attend church more often. They get involved in other people's lives easier, like in groups or studies or things like that. Uh, because they have the encouragement, the support, the relationships to carry, carry them through. Oftentimes, when people are disconnected from people and they only attend a building or worship, they feel less apart or less valuable. And it's, so I want to encourage you, if, you're, if you don't have like people yet, let me encourage you to find some people. Uh, and, and I'll help you find, these are the best people that I know. Uh, so you, you just about can't go wrong. So anyway, let me get back to this. Uh, so <laughs> just think about this friendship with Ruth is great, but Ruth doesn't have much to offer her. And now she's actually responsible. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. She's lost her home. She's lost, every, she has nothing. She's returning back. Nothing except for this daughter-in-law. I don't even know how I'm going to provide for you. So she's simply being brutally honest about her feelings toward God. And let me just, I, really, I've said all of that to say this. Did you know that God can handle your brutal honesty? If you feel it, you might as well express it to him. He can handle it. He's handled it for me. God's big enough to handle our feelings toward him. To ask him why I grew up, I grew up where you are not allowed to ask God why. Don't you dare question God. And I've learned as an adult, if you don't question him, he might not answer. Sometimes he's the one who is allowing things in your life to cause you to ask the right question, to purify your questions. Honest and raw. Not angry, not spiteful, but processing. We live in a day where psychologists would tell you that you need to vent. You need to, I mean, just get it out. Do whatever it takes just to get it out. But my advice would be that rather than just blowing up on people who say, hey, you don't look well, are you okay? I'm bitter. Maybe, maybe that those are not. Maybe, maybe she should have been directing this to God Himself. Maybe that's the place we should vent instead of circling people in our camps. Maybe we should vent to the Lord. And by the way, do you you know it? You can still remain faithful to God even when you question. You you can still remain faithful to God, and for all account. It seems like Ruth is, but she's struggling in her faith. Not that God exists, but that God is faithful to her, that God loves her and cares for her. But this is actually the epitome of faith. When you can stay faithful during difficulty, that's, that's faith. Staying faithful when you get your way, that's not faithfulness. But staying faithful when you don't get your way, there's there's where faith is built. So we read these words of seemingly anger, but honest, being poured out to God in the Psalms and in other places. A couple I just thought of, uh, of to share with you. Psalm 13, 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? Who do you think is getting the blame there? Psalm 22 is familiar. You've heard Jesus say it when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving 
me. So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day. You do not answer by night and not silent. Asaph wrote in Psalm 77, Will the Lord reject forever? Will he show, never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? And I think the reason that God preserves these is so that he can, with a resounding yes, speak clearly into our life. I am for you. I will not forsake you. You can feel whatever. I will always be with you. I think of Lamentations chapter 3. It's actually one of my very favorite passages. Uh, It's a little lengthy, but I'd like to read it. I am the man, not a man. Jeremiah says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. This is God's prophet. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and I cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone and he has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. That's what Naomi said. He bent his bow and he set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become the laughing stock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness, that word means. I have forgotten how to determine what good even is. And so I say, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wonderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down before me. I like to think that when Jeremiah writes this, he goes, it feels so good to get it off my shoulders. Verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Once we're honest with the Lord, he's able to, to give us clarity of thought. When you're honest before the Lord, you've got to make sure that you're listening to him as well. He will answer. And in each of the cases that we've talked about, it's the processing of honest feelings that produce a softened heart. To be able to communicate with God, you know, we call it prayer, but this is just like an express expression of our hearts before the Lord so that he can purify that. Sometimes we, we hear ourselves say things in prayer, our spirits groan and things, and we, we come to realize either how selfish we are or how broken we are or how lopsided in our view we are. We process things that way, and God uses those moments to purify us so that he can pierce the darkness with his light. Naomi's feelings are legitimate. It's what she was feeling. But her theology was not accurate. Her feelings were legitimate, but her theology is not. She blamed God for all of her pain and all of her suffering. She said, God is responsible for everything that's happened to me. But the question that we need to ask is, is God responsible for everything that has happened to her? 
You may say, yes, God is responsible because ultimately God is sovereign and he is over all things. But if God miraculously intervened every time we disobey, how could we ever learn? If God never allowed us to go through any difficulty and he constantly produced miracles to keep us from any difficulty, how could we ever learn that he is ultimately faithful? If he never allowed us to go through the valley, how could we ever learn that he's with us? We're so quick to blame God when things are messed up, aren't we? It's funny, when things are bad, God is sovereign. But when things are good, we're charismatic. When, when things don't go the way you want to, how could God allow this to happen? When you get the promotion, I've worked hard. Isn't it odd? The things we take credit for and the things that we blame God for. There seems to be an intuitive recognition of the sovereignty of God among people. But it's almost always limited to bad things. Think of when God showed up in the garden with Adam and Eve and he looked at Adam and he said, who told you you were naked? How, who, how did this happen? There's a woman you gave me, Lord. Who ultimately is getting blamed there? Eve? It's the serpent <laughs> that you created. <laughs> she didn't say that, but. Well, we like to play that blame game, right? Something bad happens. Oh, it wasn't my fault. Something good happens, well, it's all my fault. <laughs> it's my credit. Faulty thinking assumes that when good things happen, we take credit. Bad things happen, it's okay for us to blame God. I don't know why. Why wouldn't Naomi say, I went away full? She said, I went away full, but God has brought me back empty. Why couldn't she say, the Lord sent me away full, but I've come back empty? See, Matthew, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is what was going on in her heart. God's against me. God's afflicted me. God has made me bitter. God doesn't want me anymore. I'm wasted goods. I've messed up. I'm cast off. This faulty thinking has been in her heart. Now it's coming out of her mouth. God is sovereign. But he's also good. Exclusively good. So if you're taking notes, I really want you to write this down. I want you to remember this. If we only see the sovereignty of God without the goodness of God, it will always lead to bitterness. If you only see his sovereignty without his goodness, it will always lead to bitterness. Just like Naomi. And you'll begin to blame God for everything, every bad thing. God is good, but the world is not. It's not news to us. This is why Jesus said in John 16, when he said, I've told you these things that you may have, what? Peace. Now listen, we're going to do a really quick formula here in just a second. So that you may have peace. Remember that. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. That word is thorseo. It means to, to fortify your, your heart, to, to encourage yourself with good cheer, to be able to think about the positive side. That's what thorseo means. But take heart. I have overcome the world. So ultimately what he says is, I've told you these things. He's talking about the second coming, what it's going to look like when he returns. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, thorseo, fortify your heart, have good cheer. I have overcome the world. I've told you these things so that you can be at peace. By the way, the things he told them are, it's going to be really rough, guys. <laughs> Be at peace. Because in this world, you're going to have trouble. 
but I've overcome the trouble of the world. Know that. Okay? I have overcome the trouble of the world. Encourage your heart with that message. And with that hope, your life will have peace. So you run upon trouble. Oh, why is God? No, God is good. He has overcome the world. In this world, you will have trouble. But I've already overcome it. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of that. That doesn't mean bad things are not going to happen. They are going to happen. And you're not going to understand them, and you're certainly not going to agree with all of them. But that doesn't matter. Really bad things are going to happen to every one of us. But we have to not only see God's sovereignty, we have to also include God's goodness. And when you do that and you know that he has already overcome, that's the hope that we need that gives birth to the peace in our hearts, right? Peace in our hearts. How do I know if I receive that? Oh, you can say it all day long, really. We can confess things all day long. But when the natural expression of your mouth is peace and hope, that's how you know that you've believed it here. But if you're critical and you're complaining and you're judgmental and everything is bad... That really is a testimony of what's going on right here. Naomi is a really good uh, illustration of that. In Romans 8.28, Paul encouraged the believers. He said, and we know. That's how this verse starts. And we know. We have come to learn. For those who love God, all things work together. For what is it? I mean, do we know that? When we don't get our way, do we know that? I mean, listen, if Naomi could have had the end of the book, she would have said, I guess I can gut it out. It'll be worth it in the end. But she didn't have the end of the book. You don't have the end of the book. What advice would you use to talk to Naomi? Would you say, Naomi, it's okay. We know the end of the book. Well, God has told you it's going to be okay. I, I know the end of the book. In every circumstance. So here's five things I want you to hold on to. And they're quick. Don't get nervous. Don't become bitter. Number one, we only see things partially now. Don't, don't make Big assumptions with the limited understanding that you have. Don't draw conclusions. When you can only see from your perspective, you can't see the other side. So here, if it ain't good, he ain't done. Secondly, God is not the author of sin and evil. We've already talked about it. I saw somebody said the other day, said, <clears throat> there's a meme or something, said, Adam, Adam in heaven, he's been there long enough now, he's created a t-shirt. It just says on the front of it, I'm really sorry. <laughs> uh, I don't really blame Adam because I know if I were Adam, I'd have, I'd, have, I'd have messed up too. I've messed up long before I knew about Adam, so... The good news is that God was not satisfied for us to remain lost. In fact, when Adam sinned, God already had the plan. God didn't, when Adam sinned, when you sinned, there's never a time where God goes, uh-oh, that ain't the way that was supposed to work out. Now I've got to really quickly put another plan together. God doesn't have plan B. Everything that happens is God's plan A. When Adam and Eve sinned, God had already determined for the foundation of the world he was going to send his son because he knew what was going to happen, but he had to give them the options for him to be good. Number three, God is not the author of sin and evil. Did I already say that one? But he can redeem it. He's still, it's, still under his, it's still under his authority. He's not the author of it. But there is not another entity in all of creation that can take sin and evil and actually redeem it. 
He could take your absolute worst moments, your worst thoughts, your worst heart, the deepest grief that you could ever experience, and God can use it for good if you'll release it to him. I have been through some really, really dark times in my life. Things I never want to go through again. Decisions that I have made that I do not want to repeat. I hope that I have learned lessons. And yet I find that God takes the lessons I learned during those days and he allows me to use those for his glory almost daily. Number four, there will be a day when suffering will cease and God will judge all evil and injustice. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And lastly, number five, while we wait for vindication, our hope is in the Lord. Romans 5, 3 through 5 says, Suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who he has given us. By the end of the book of Ruth, Naomi will have moved from bitter to blessed. And she has no idea how things were going to go for her. But look what happens. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And that hope does not disappoint. It's that hope that we have that we fortify our hearts with. And when it's fortified, our hearts begin to saturate in the goodness of God will overcome. And when that, what begins to come out is peace, not just out of our mouth, but out of our hands and out of our lives and out of our agenda. God works out all things and for our good and at the same time for his glory because his glory is our greatest good. One of my favorite people is Corey Ten Boom. And when she was at a death camp during the days of the Nazis trying to take over the world, she said, no matter how deep, if you haven't ever read, studied Corey Ten Boom, you, you ought to do that. She said, no matter how deep our darkness, he is deeper still. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this time together today. Thank you that we can be honest before you. We do experience pain and we experience struggle. We learn from each other as we go through that. We learn that you are sufficient. We learn that you are gracious. I ask, Lord, that you would help us find the clues today of being able to shift from bitter to blessed. And yet the circumstances does, don't change much. Help us to develop uh, a better ability to focus in on your glory rather than our story. Help us to always to be able to not only see your hand, but to, to reveal your hand. There's a lot of things for us to learn here today because we all go through trouble. Some of us have just, just come out of it. Some of us are just about to go into it and we don't even know. But Lord, I pray that we would learn how to just stop, how to focus on your presence, how to focus on our hearts, and how to keep ourselves from bitterness. Lord, I pray that your people would be known as a pleasant people, and I'm afraid they're not. So help us, Lord, to be pleasant. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with me, please? You know, this morning I'm just sitting here thinking about all the things, all of the experiences, all the stories that we have. 
and there's no doubt that there's things in our story that have brought us to uh, bitterness. And we've learned to move around it and we've learned to navigate it and we've learned maybe to not identify by it, but there's still this pain that's in us that just keeps us from fully trusting the Lord. There's this, there's these heartaches that just keep us from fully being able to trust him with everything. I mean, we, we can pray and we go to church and we read our Bibles and all that, but like this intimate relationship, there's just some things that has built up a callus around my heart that I just don't trust him the way I should. He's allowed too much affliction. Maybe today, I guess my encouragement would be, would, would, you, would you just be able to pray if, if there's something there? Maybe you don't even, maybe it's in a closet door that you don't open much, but would you just maybe ask God to reveal that to you so that you could lay it down. I'm certain that you're carrying around so much weight that you're not meant to carry. And I'm telling you, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're weighed down and you're carrying, you can't, you can't look up to see His blessing. So today, would you just kind of let go, try to just pray and just kind of let Him have His way and focus on His goodness? Let go of the pain. Lord, today we thank you for your goodness and, and we, we recognize that that is not the first thing we think when we are looking at a block, uh, a blocked path or a, something that gets in the way of our plan. And so I ask, Lord, today that you would remind us, maybe even go back in our, we could go back in our history and we can see the things that Satan meant for evil and how you meant them for good. You, you are constantly allowing us to overcome and to move forward. Though we don't always get our way, Lord, ultimately, our life is about your glory. So help us to reveal that with full hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.